and also thanks to the organizers, the Carmichael, for in inviting us, inviting me to come and speak and share some of the some of our, our knowledge with you. Um, just a bit of my background, as Annette already informed you, I spent quite a, some time in conflict-affected areas. And, you know, one of the things that, um, and this goes to my motivation on, on, on working for IEP, for the Institute for Economics and Peace, is that it became sort of frustrating after a while um, working in these, in these areas and not knowing really what, what really works. And if we're spending enough um, and putting enough resources in peace building, um, clearly not, otherwise we would have already achieved peace. Um, and also if we're you know, spending it at the, where, where it's most needed. And so a lot of these questions I, I was struggling with, and this actually brought me to the Institute for Economics and Peace that really tries to get a better understanding of, uh, of peace by actually measuring it, try to measure its uh, progress or its deterioration. Um, and so today I, I'm just gonna sh uh, touch on some of these aspects uh, with you in, in a slide, a deck that I prepared for you. It's, I'm gonna go quite fast through a number of slides, so I say buckle up, I would say. <laughs> Um, very briefly, Institute for Economics and Peace, for those of who haven't heard of, heard of it, um, it's, it's really a, a think tank in, uh, on, on peace. It tries to use data and metrics to come up products and concepts really that create a better understanding of peace. We have offices in these four cities in the world. I'm in the Hague office, and we, um, some of you may probably know us from the Global Peace Index, that's our flagship program. Um, we started that in 2008, uh, but we have a number of other key research areas that we, um, that we cover. So the first one is really measuring peace. The Global Peace Index is an example, but we have national indices that we produce, like the Mexico Peace Index. We do measurements on SDG 16, for instance. A second research area is positive peace. I'll talk about that as well today. The economic cost of violence and violence containment is a third research area. I'll also talk a lot about that today. And the last bit, which I hope we'll have some time for, um, is around uh, frameworks on, on risk. Um, so I will take you through we start with the Global Peace Index very briefly and look at some trends in peace. This is actually last year's Global Peace Index. Uh, we're in one month's time, um, we're going to launch the new 2018 Global Peace Index. Uh, so I'll talk a bit about the trends, I'll talk about economic impact, i talk uh, of violence that is, and then on the flip side of it, the cost effectiveness of, fl of, of, of peace building. And I end with and that you know, the link with business, business and peace, and peace builds business. Um, so let us have a look at just a snapshot of the global state of peace in, in 2016. Um, here's what that looks like. It reflects data from uh, March 2016 to March 2017. Countries in orange and red um, are less peaceful than the countries in yellow and green. Um, in general, this uh, map, or the, our index, finds that global levels of peace continue <coughs> to deteriorate, while the gap between the most peaceful and the least peaceful countries continue to widen. 
And we see that trend also continue in, 2000, in the 2018 GPI. Now let's look at some of these trends. For instance, um, 80 countries became more peaceful in 2016. 83 countries became less peaceful. And we saw uh, that peace declined over the last decade um, in, uh, over in, in a percentage of 2.14%. Here you see that in a nice graph. Uh, you should actually look at it upside down. This is a deterioration. Um, then let's have a quick look at some numbers. Increase in deaths or in conflict deaths almost set up 700%. Terrorism deaths almost 300 or 250%. It's at an all-time high at the moment. And the refugees, we talked about it this morning as well, almost 64 million in 2016. Now, what is all that, uh, all that violence, what, does that, uh, what kind of impact does it have? Um, each year we actually produce an estimate of the global cost of violence. Um, we just basically add up all of the costs associated with containing, preventing, and dealing with the consequences of violence. And we use this term, economic impact of violence, to explain the combined effect of the direct, the direct and the indirect cost and the multiplier effect. So basically when a country avoids the economic impact of violence, it realizes a peace uh, dividend. And our analysis assumes that that multiplier is one, uh, signifying basically that for every dollar saved on, on violence containment, there will be an additional dollar um, for um, in economic activity. Um, so let's have a look on the global economic impact of violence in 2017. We looked at 17 different dimensions and this figure of 14.3 trillion is staggering. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an equivalent of 12.6% of the world GDP and um, yeah, five dollars per uh, 40 per person per day. Now, here's a bit of a breakdown. You'll see that uh, the spend, uh, government spending on military and internal security comprises of 68% of the global impact of violence. So if we just sum it up, the first one I mentioned already, um, the average economic cost of violence was equivalent to 37% of GDP in the 10 least peaceful, peaceful countries, compared to only 3% in the 10 most peaceful. Um, then you can see also that, for instance, if you take a look at Syria, the, the economic cost of violence was 67% of its GDP. And here's where we can show actually the economic impact of violence in, in Syria. And we looked at, uh, and this graph shows that it completely fell by 53% uh, of GDP in 2011 and 2014. And it also indicates what the, the, G, uh, the GDP trend would have looked like if um, you know, the direct and indirect cost of violence would have been uh, avoided and economic, economic activity could have continued. Now, here you see, for instance, that the cost associated with violence uh, as expressed as a percentage of GDP uh, increases actually exponentially uh, as one moves from uh, the, 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 the most peaceful countries to the least peaceful countries. Uh, so you can see what kind of impact it really has on a country's uh, economy. Now let's say if we if we can try to see if we can decrease this violence by let's say 
what that looks like. If the world decreases by um, only 10%, the spare economic resources that it would generate uh, would be more than three times of the total cost of climate change in 2014 and 10 times of all official development assistance and one time the global foreign direct investment in 2017, uh, 2014, sorry. So let's now um, look at the other side. Let's look at the cost effectiveness uh, uh, of peace building. So besides the, the, the moral argument, um, I think by just showing you the economic impact of violence, there's also a good financial case to be made for peace building as a way to prevent conflict and to save some, save some cost. But if we look at the uh, conflict losses versus the peace building and peacekeeping, you will see that peacekeeping and peace building only accounts for 2% of the cost of violent conflict. This basically suggests a serious underinvestment and reinforces the point that the world is spending a lot of, on violence and very little on peace. Here you see, uh, if you take a closer look at the, um, the, 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 the peace building expenditures as a percentage of ODA for 33 conflict affected countries in 2013, <coughs> you see that of the uh, total of official development assistance, only 16% went to uh, peace building. Now, if we look at this, um, all of these 33, uh, 31 uh, conflict-affected countries, then you see also that uh, the peace building expenditures really very, very different uh, across these countries. The blue bars are the peace building expenditures, the rest, the green bars, are really the, uh, the, the rest of the ODA. So, um, it, 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 you know, it, it, the question then comes up, essentially, but is, build, is peace building going, going where it's most needed? You know? and, and are the needs really aligned where the, uh, with the resources that are spent uh, at the moment? So here is another chart for you that looks at the donor expenditure, um, and it reveals the donor priorities and how they relate to peace building. The dark blue bars are again the peace building expenditure. Um, you see, for instance, that uh, the UK uh, commits is one of the few countries that commit one of the largest sums, a total of 23% of its uh, of its ODA to peace building. Um, again, um, it, it, it essentially shows that peace building is relatively underfunded, uh, an underfunded aspect of. Uh, of ODA at the moment. Now, um, nevertheless, peace building is, is very cost effective, and I'm going to show you that. This figure highlights the projected cost of conflict for peace and war, uh, peace and war scenarios uh, for 31 conflict affected countries between 1995 and 2025. The scenario in red is obviously the worst case, uh, the worst possible outcome, and the peace scenario in blue represents the best uh, case outcome, which would lead to the cost of, of conflict being uh, substantially reduced over the, over the next 10 years. Now, the peace dividend is the difference between the cost of conflict, um, uh, basically between the cost of conflict between those uh, two scenarios. So, in order to actually achieve this large peace dividend, 
um, we would require more than doubling of the current peace building expenditures over what is what's currently being spent in in the 31 most fragile and conflict affected countries. Now, if we actually we did the calculation on it, we we modeled this uh, with a, a separate piece of research, and it showed that if we calculate the peace dividend, it's estimated to uh, at 2.94. A trillion dollars over a decade and this means that if the recommended level of peace building was reached every dollar invested in peace building would lead to a cost reduction in conflict of $16 so now but how much should be actually spent on peace building well, the question is not so much how much it's more of a question on what kind of peace building strategy works and how do we know what works and how do we actually know where to put our limited resources and you know if we know that is there a way also to bid, to to bring business on board so this is what I'd like to show you next um, this is for, for basically what we need to do in order to answer that last question that I, that I mentioned is we need to somehow predict the changes in rankings in the global peace index. We need to predict if we can predict a fall in ranking of one country. And um, we actually can do this uh, by using um, another piece of, uh, of research um, it's called the positive peace framework that measures the uh, institute, institutions and structures and attitudes that prevent violence and sustain a peaceful society. And here's what that looks like. This, is, uh, this helps us, uh, this, this is called our, our positive peace uh, framework. Um, it also helps us to determine the risks. Um, this, these, this framework consists of eight pillars uh, they're all interrelated factors, factors contributing to positive peace. Well-functioning government, equitable distribution of resources, free flow of information, good relationship with neighbors, uh, acceptance of the rights of others, uh, high levels of human capital, um, and sound business environment, and low <coughs> levels of corruption. And we talked a bit about corruption actually today and also yesterday during the dinner. And one of the things to, 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 uh, to comment here is that, you know, of all of these things here that, that you see on the screen, corruption is the one that is strongest correlated with peace and violence. And when it doesn't matter if a country is it in, in the low, has low peace levels of, or low levels of peace or high levels of peace. So this is something really to keep in mind. But the whole thing about this structure, about this, uh, structure is that it's multidimensional, it's systemic, so it works as really as one system. Uh, and the idea of, of positive peace, and this is, this is something we measure. Um, we measure this for all the countries in the world. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that later. Uh, but it's also slow moving, and, and it really is a proxy for, for resilience. It shows you what, whether a country is um, its ability to absorb certain shocks. You can see that for, for, uh, on, on the right-hand side. Countries with high levels of positive peace are associated with a higher resilience, a quicker recovery from violent shocks, fewer violent protests, um, uh, higher per capita income, higher GDP growth, for instance. 
Um, and I'll show you its relationship also to the to business and of, to the economics and business side of it, of it. Here, for instance, you can see that countries that improve in positive peace since 1996 have 2% higher GDP growth than countries that deteriorated in positive peace. Every 1% improvement in positive peace at the moment is associated with 2.9% of, of, of growth uh, in real GDP. Uh, in per capita from, uh, and this was measured between 2005 and 2016. Now I'll show you another interesting example. This, this is the correlation between positive peace and, and currency strengthening. Countries that have improved in positive peace, <coughs> their exchange rate improved by 6.6% compared to countries that, 3.2% uh, for countries that deteriorated in positive peace. And here's another example, the correlation between the credit ratings, the credit rating scores that countries receive. Countries that deteriorated in positive peace also experienced a fall in credit rating. Now, the last one, and it's, it, it is uh, connected to the previous one, countries that improved in positive peace were also able to attract more FDI. Now these are, I forgot to mention, that these are really the non-OECD countries that we, that we looked at. Um, because you can imagine that this would also be very obvious for more of the OECD countries, but the non-OECD countries, the more developing countries, <coughs> and more fragile state. This is quite an interesting uh, uh, finding, and you, you'll find this. Uh, this is actually one, one of our, some of our new research that you'll find in the new Global Peace Index. So you, you're getting a nice preview of it today. But it shows that we can actually start using the positive peace framework for uh, looking at. Uh, looking at risk, for, uh, for instance, of countries, and I'll get to that in a minute. So, because how do you do that? Uh, this is basically a summary, I'll skip this one. Um, defining and measuring peace, what we start with is the Global Peace Index, and the Global Peace Index essentially measures uh, what we call negative peace. It, me it measures the absence of violence and the absence of fear of violence, but that doesn't say anything about um, uh, what, what actually builds a society, a peace in the society, uh, what is necessary for a peaceful society. And we did a, an, a statistical analysis over, for over 9,000 data sets, indexes, and, attitude, and attitudinal uh, surveys on factors closely associated with the deep GPI, and for that we created the Positive Peace Index. It basically measures the underlying structure and quality of institutions in countries that support peace. The Positive Peace Index of 2017 looks like this. Um, you can basically uh, see this as, as, as a, the nation's potential for peace, and as well as to show its, its resilience level to absorb violent shocks. Now, let's, let's go back to risk. Well, basically, one assumes that if a country is, uh, is uh, the country ranking on the GPI, and what we call the PPI, is should should in theory be the same. If you have high levels of resilience, you better absorb your uh, uh, you absorb your sharks better than any other uh, country. You'll 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 end up having a high score on the GPI, uh, the Global Peace Index. But that's unfortunately not always the case. Um, we can actually create, if we uh, look at the country's rankings in the, G, uh, the Global Peace Index and the Positive Peace Index, we can uh, uh, calculate the country's peace gap and, and look at uh, deteriorations. So where we, we say that where positive peace is relatively lower than negative peace, 
a country is said to have a positive peace deficit, it basically means it doesn't have the, the it can no longer absorb the violence <coughs> the, or low levels of violence, and then that country is at risk. Um, and um, yeah, so um, positive peace deficit indicates a low level of institutional and social uh, capacity to maintain peacefulness. Now, you can, um, yeah, that's what I just said. So here, this is a bit hard to read, but if you can spot uh, Syria with that big arrow, you can see what happens when you have weak positive peace. When there's a big positive peace deficit, and we measured it for a lot of the countries in between 2008 and 2015, uh, it showed that, um, that high positive peace deficit then these countries had significant falls in, 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 uh, in levels of peace. Um, basically, in other words, a country with, an, with a peace gap, gap, gap suffers from low, low resilience. Now, this, for instance, this brings us to some, you know, some predictions. Could we have predicted Syria, for instance? Let's like have, have a look at uh, the Global Peace Index, if you can spot Syria. Uh, it's colored in yellow in 2008, but here's the map of 2016, and Syria dropped in the GPI rankings from 99 to 163 over the course of eight years. Uh, actually, very few people saw this coming. Um, IP's risk model, model was one of the few that actually predicted this um, in 2008. Um, so, uh, uh, this is just a comparison of, of risk models. I'll, I'll skip this for the moment, but it, it, it says that we'll look at different risk models and to see which ones were, well, were most accurate. And the, the one that I'm describing now, the positive peace deficit risk model, is, is one of the ones that, uh, that's, that scores fairly high on this. Um, so countries were most at risk in 2008. These were the 10 countries that we predicted and actually, all of the countries that fell into conflict between 2008 and 2017 had positive peace <coughs> deficits. <coughs> Incidentally, the countries that um, didn't fall into, uh, into conflict, you can see that their levels of positive <coughs> peace actually increased. So they were able to, able to avoid uh, conflict by increasing their positive peace levels. Now, what does this all mean? On, on, uh, in terms of uh, peace building. If, let's say, the positive peace deficit model had been used as a forecasting model for allocating peace building expenditures uh, for the 10 most at risk countries in 2008, then according to the model, we would have, uh, have been reallocated, we allocated a peace building amount totaling of 47 billion. That's the left column. That would be ideal. Um, but you can see what the actual peace building funding, if we project it forwards, in, uh, uh, is actually at the moment, is, uh, this gives a figure of 8.3 billion. So it's much lower than the I ideal peace building uh, scenario. Now, I'd like to, uh, almost at the end of things at the moment, so how can we really use this? Let me sh show you a few a few scenarios, a few scenario analysis. 
this diagram shows the option for an actor uh, not to act or to act on a risk forecast and what the costs are. The cost of not doing anything and no ha nothing happens, there's no war. The cost of, of war in the second scenario. Um, <coughs> third scenario, the cost of prevention and where there is an attribution, attribution challenge. And the last one is the worst case scenario, the cost of prevention, um, but still war happens. If you look at the uh, of Syria, for instance, then what the figures would uh, look like. So the first scenario cost is zero. So the second scenario, there's the war. There's 314 billion the, co uh, the cost of war in Syria at the moment. If uh, we had done something about it, or an actor had something to be done, you know, 10 years prior to the country falling into into those levels of violence, it would have cost five billion. And obviously, the difference between or the, if you add those two up, you still have war, but you did it with prevention. You add it with a, a, a higher cost. <coughs> now, I've come to the end of my presentation, but I would like to just very briefly touch on on, uh, on the SDGs. I'd like to show you something. Uh, what does this all mean for the for the SDGs? We know these are not our figures, but these are figures from the um, from the UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. So the total investments needs in order to achieve the SDGs are at the moment five to seven trillion per year for um, the, the developing countries uh, in, in, in very specific uh, key SDG sectors. It's estimated to be about uh, 4.4 trillion. Um, but the current investment in these sectors is only 1.4 trillion, which leaves a gap of, of, uh, of uh, 2.5 trillion in, at the moment. Now, the question is, what I'd like to leave you with, with this particular question, what path is actually needed for developing or low peace countries to attract the investment needed to achieve the SDGs? Thank you.